Thank you, Jim. Well, as we have been announcing for, uh, I don't know, four or five weeks now, we are having an all-church meeting today after service. And I uh, really want to encourage each and every one of you to be there because what we're going to be talking about affects each and every one of you. Um, we're going to be talking about good things, exciting things, uh, what we anticipate God doing in our midst this year. Um, so you'll, you'll want to be a part of that. And if, if that's not enough to convince you to be there, there's free lunch and free mugs. So hopefully that'll seal the deal for you, uh, you carnal-minded people. No, I'm just kidding. So um, no, please join us for that. It is going to be, uh, I think, an encouraging and refreshing time um, for each and every one of us. Um, so today uh, we'll probably end service around 11.50, and then we're going to serve lunch right away. Eat that in your seats, and we'll try to get you out of here maybe 12.45, 12.35, somewhere in there. So we don't want to take too much of your day. Um, so hopefully that enables more of you to attend. But yeah, please join us for that. Um, and, and even if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, you can still benefit from being there, seeing where the Lord is going to take us. Um, that's always relevant information when you're visiting a church, isn't it? Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 for this morning. And kids, if you're taking notes on those little pieces of paper, the passage we're going to be in is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. 1 through 16. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And we've probably all heard it. We've probably all said it. It's not fair. It's not fair. I think those are maybe the three most common words that people under age, I don't know, 18 say, right? It's not, it's not fair, right? I was here first. She got more than me. Right? Kids, can you guys think of a time when you thought something was not fair? Probably a lot of times, right? Now, when it comes to how other people are treated compared to ourselves, we, we tend to be vigilantes for fairness. And we can be quite indignant when other people receive a better deal than we do, or, or when other people receive more for doing less. Now, for example, one of the most controversial issues of the past 20 years in America was affirmative action, right? If you guys remember affirmative action, which was recently struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, affirmative action allowed for certain racial groups to be given preference in college admissions or for job hiring, which prompted uh, much outrage and claims of it's not fair, right? After all, many opponents said, shouldn't admission to college or, or scholarships or getting a job be based on merit rather than race, right? And that's, that's a valid point, right? That's that's an important thing to bring up. But is it possible to have the same kind of attitude of indignation towards the grace of God? In our passage this morning, Jesus tells a parable to explain how God's grace puts the first last and the last first, and how he is wise, generous, and sovereign to give his grace when, how, and to whom he pleases. Let's go ahead and read our text Starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the marketplace too. Or, sorry, you go into the vineyard too, excuse me. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. 
And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired, about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last only work for one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of God. Let's uh, ask for his help in prayer as we hear it this morning. Our Lord and our God, you are abundant in grace. You are steadfast in your love, plentiful in your mercy, perfect in your justice. And Lord, your word tells us that your ways are higher than ours, that your thoughts are above ours, that you are not accountable to us, but we are to you. And Lord, as we hear the teaching of Jesus in this parable this morning, as we hear your word, which is perfect and inspired and authoritative, Lord, I ask that you would help us to submit our understanding of who you are to your word. Lord, that we would, um, perhaps in those areas where we are tempted to look at your works and say, that's not fair, that we would realize your greatness and your sovereignty, but also your great generosity and mercy. And Lord, show us those areas where perhaps we are begrudging your generosity towards others. And instead, Lord, would you turn that begrudging into rejoicing over your abundant grace. And Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of your word, to apply it to our hearts, and Lord, help me to proclaim your word faithfully, clearly, and in a way that honors you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is Begrudging the Generosity of God, and the parable itself is divided up into two parts. One, verses 1 through 7, we see the master calls when he chooses. In verses 8 through 16, we see that the master pays what he chooses. And then finally, we'll look at some ways that this parable can be applied. So point number one, the master calls when he chooses. Now, now the context of this parable is actually set up for us by the previous section in Matthew 19. Uh, If you recall last week, we saw how Jesus describes the difficulty that the wealthy have to enter the kingdom of heaven, um, right? Just based on their earthly success, that's not enough to merit heaven, right? It is faith in Christ alone that brings one into his kingdom. And Jesus closed that teaching in verse 30 of chapter 19, if you just turn a page or, or, or look a couple verses up, with this teaching, many who are first will be last and the last first. We find that same teaching in verse 16 of our parable this morning. And these act like bookends. They really tell us, what this parable is about. They tell us what Jesus is illustrating here in this story. And Jesus begins the parable in verse 1 by making a comparison to the kingdom of heaven, which is how he begins almost all of his parables, right? These aren't just like Aesop's fables, right? They don't teach just a moral point. No, these are 
stories that illustrate fundamental and spiritual truths about the kingdom of God. And as we see in verse 1, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to the master of a house. The master of a house. This is a landowner. He has property. He has a vineyard. He, he needs workers to harvest his grapes. This is harvest time. And it's not a job that he's going to handle himself. He's going to hire out the work. That would be traditionally what would be done in the time. And these workers would be hired for a 12-hour shift. That would be the time. That, that wasn't typical except during harvest time. So he goes out probably to the marketplace, which is where workers would gather waiting to be hired, early in the morning, probably about 6 a.m., the beginning of the day. And as he goes, he sees workers there. And as we read in verse 2, they strike up a, a, an agreement, a contract. You work for me for the entire 12 hours of the day. I'll pay you a denarius. Now, a denarius was typically one day's wages, right, for a, for a standard laborer. So this is a fair wage. This is normal pay. Um, everybody's satisfied with the contract. The master's happy. The laborers are happy. And the workers are sent out into the vineyard. Uh, but the master decides, decides to hire more workers, and he goes back to the marketplace at the third hour, which is around 9 in the morning, and we look at verses 3 and 4, and we see there are others in the marketplace waiting for work. But the text says that they are there standing idle. They're there standing idle. Now, at first glance, that may suggest to us laziness, but that's not really what's being communicated here. They're there waiting to be hired. They just haven't been hired yet. They haven't been given any work to do yet. And so the master then chooses to hire them. But notice that the arrangement is different in verse 4. He doesn't say, I'll pay you a denarius. He says, whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever is right, I will give you. There's no stated price. There's no set in stone contract. Um, he simply says, I'll pay you a fair wage. Now the day is one quarter over. So maybe these workers are thinking, okay, I'll get three quarters of a denarius since I'm working for three quarters of the day. And he sends them out into his vineyard, and the text tells us he continues to go to the marketplace throughout the day at the sixth hour, which is around noon, and the ninth hour, which is around 3 p.m., continuing to hire workers to work in his field. Now, the text doesn't tell us why the master does this. We don't know, does he need more workers? Does he have a very large vineyard? Is he wanting to help provide work to families in his community? Right? Maybe both. We don't know. But in any case, the householder continues bringing in workers to his vineyard throughout the day, making different arrangements with each set of workers. But when we get to verse 6, we see the last group of workers that the householder is going to hire. He goes out to the marketplace one last time at the 11th hour. That's, that's 5 p.m. That's almost the end of the day. There's only one hour left to work in the vineyard at this point. Hardly any time at all. But the master still finds people there waiting to be hired. He asks them why you're standing there. They tell him in verse 7, nobody's hired us all day, right? We have not been hired. And one commentator suggests that these workers are maybe the least desirable workers, which is why they haven't been hired yet, right? They're the kids being picked last for kickball. Um, but yet, look what happens. The master hires them too. Right? We, we see in verse 7, he says, you go into the vineyard as well. He tells them, go get to work. Now remember, there's only one hour left in the day, but still the master hires these workers. No arrangement for wages. No agreement on pay. But you can imagine these last workers are expecting a very small paycheck. Right? Very, one, 
you know, one-twelfth of a denarius, perhaps. And we'll get more into the meaning of this parable as we go, but it's pretty evident, as we look at this first half of the parable, that the master of the house represents God. He represents God, and uh, God calls these different workers into his vineyard. Now, what's, what's the vineyard? Well, the vineyard, I think, symbolizes something in this parable as well. It symbolizes God's covenant people, his kingdom. Um, this is an Old Testament theme that is especially prominent in the prophet Isaiah. Now, if we look back over at Isaiah chapter 5, go ahead and turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 5, we see this theme of a vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5. In this chapter of Isaiah, Judah and Israel, God's old covenant people, are described as a vineyard. And we, we see in verse 1, Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. It describes the way that the, um, the vineyard owner cultivated the vineyard. Right? This is, of course, a metaphor for how God redeemed Israel and built them up as a nation. Um, and as we go through the text, we see, of course, Israel and Judah, who are under the judgment of God, um, verses 5 and 6, will be devoured. The wall will be broken down. It will be trampled down. It will be made a waste, right? So this is not positive imagery here about this vineyard, but look what we see in verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And so this is a, a, a symbolic theme that flows from the Old Testament that this picture of God's vineyard, are his people. They are his people. And so this helps us understand a little bit more of what's going on in the parable. The householder calling these workers into his vineyard represents God calling people into his kingdom. Remember, Jesus sets up the parable with the kingdom of heaven is like. Right? So it tells us that's a fundamental aspect to the meaning of this parable. God calling people into his kingdom. And like the master, God has the authority and the ability to call whosoever he chooses into his kingdom. And he has the authority to do this whenever he wants, whether the first hour of the day or the last hour of the day. And he does this in varying times and in varying ways. But in the words of Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And that's what we see in the next part of the parable as well, verses 8 through 16. The master pays what he chooses. The workers come to the end of the day. It's evening now, around 6 p.m. They're done working. And the owner has the foreman call the laborers in to pay them. But notice in verse 8, something very interesting. What does the owner of the vineyard say to the foreman? Pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. Again, this reflects Jesus' teaching. The first will be last and the last first. We see that in the arrangement for how these men are to be paid. And so according to the master of the house's instructions, the, the last hired workers, the 11th hour workers, are paid first. Now remember, they've only worked for an hour. But as we see in verse 9, they don't receive a twelfth of a denarius. They receive a full denarius. They receive a full day's wages, the full reward for one hour of work in one of the nicest parts of the day to be laboring, right? It's nice and cool in the evening. These guys had a pretty good deal. The rest of the workers are paid as well, a denarius each, we can see. And in verse 10, finally, the workers who were hired first are now paid last. They come forward to receive their wages, and 
we, we see in verse 10, they think they're going to receive it more than a denarius. They think they're getting more. And, and that makes sense, doesn't it? It would make sense for them to get more because they worked for 12 hours. These other guys only worked for an hour. So it would be fair for these first workers to receive more, wouldn't it? Maybe 12 denaries, right? Denarii. All right, they worked 12 times as long, but no. Verse 10 tells us they each receive a denarius as well. And what happens when they receive it? They are indignant. They are angry. Verse 11 tells us they're grumbling at the master of the house. They say these last ones worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have worked during the hottest part of the day. Right? In other words, it's not fair. It's not fair. We deserve more if that's what they're going to get. It's not fair. But is, isn't this the natural bent of human nature? Uh, to want as much as we feel entitled to? To claim for ourselves what we feel we deserve? Especially if we see other people getting a better deal than we do? But friends, this approach, this response, ignores God's providence. It ignores God's plan. And the master of the house reminds both these workers and us of this in verse 13. Look how he responds. And this doesn't come across so much in the English, but in the Greek, these are really short, clipped sentences. So the master is not responding in a calm, nice way. He's actually getting indignant at the indignation that he's receiving from this worker. And he's essentially rebuking him here. And the first thing he says is, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. I'm doing you no wrong. The master of the house had not done anything unjust or unethical, had he? He'd not betrayed this worker. He didn't play a trick on him. And the second thing the master of the house says is, did you not agree with me for a denarius? We had agreed on a price at the beginning of the day. There was no problem then for you to receive a denarius. You did what you said you would do, work 12 hours. I did what I said I would do, pay you a fair day's wages. We've both fulfilled our ends of the deal. The master then is being perfectly just and honest, isn't he? He's not being underhanded. He did exactly what he said he would do. And the rebuke continues in, into verse 14. The master of the house reminds the worker, this denarius is what belongs to you. This is rightfully yours. You can now take it and go. After all, says the master, I can choose to give this denarius to you, and I can choose to give this denarius to the 11th hour worker. He has the freedom to do these decisions as he wants to do. And this is even emphasized more in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The vineyard belongs to the master of the house. The money belongs to the master of the house. The workers do not get to tell him what to do with his money, especially after they've already agreed to certain terms, right? And in the same way, God's grace is his to do with as he pleases. The things he provides for us in life. Right? God owns everything. And what he gives to each one of us, he is free to do. If God gives one man a mansion and another a hut, it's all God's to do with as he pleases. And this is reminiscent of Romans chapter 9 in which God is compared to the potter 
And humans are compared to the vessels made by the potter. Uh, verses 21 and uh, 20 and 21, excuse me, say this, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Right? That's what we could say to this servant here. Who are you, O servant, to answer back to the master? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What's the point there? Well, the point is that God is perfectly free to do as he chooses with his creation. Now, there are things God cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. But God is also perfectly free. He's perfectly free to do whatever he pleases and to show generosity, grace, mercy, provision as he pleases. And God is not a socialist. God does not do equal distribution of wealth. God gives to some more and to some less. We don't know why he does what he does. We don't know why he provides what he provides. Right? We don't get that window into his inner workings. But he does not treat all men equally in terms of what he grants to them or what he gives to them. It's not based on our merit or who we are either but based on his wisdom. Now, God is obligated in regards to justice, right? God always does what is just and right. Amen? Amen. But he is free in regards to mercy. He's free in regards to mercy. One commentator remarks in this parable that those who had worked all day lost nothing. They lost nothing. Justice was served. They got what they earned, right? But mercy was added for the 11th hour workers. Now, is that fair? No. God is not bound by what is fair. He's bound by what is just. And he is free in terms of what is merciful. The householder concludes this rebuke with a remark that really puts everything in perspective. Do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? More literally in the Greek, does your eye see my generosity as evil? Right? Is your eye bad towards my generosity? Now, the first workers, um, they're not actually angry at a real injustice. No injustice has been done here. They're angry that these last workers received generosity. They're angry that these last workers had a better situation than they did. Now, these first workers wanted to be the recipients of generosity as well in order that they might receive what, more than what they did, right? Um, but there was no injustice done. The householder was perfectly just, perfectly fair. They agreed on the wage. Their indignation came because somebody else got more money for less work. That's where their indignation comes from. It is a perceived injustice, not a real injustice. And ultimately, their objection is to gracious, merciful generosity on the part of the master. That's what they're protesting against. How dare you be generous to them and not to us, right? And Jesus concludes the parable in verse 16 with a restatement of, uh, of 1930. The last shall be first, and the first last. Now we see this played out in the order that the workers are paid, but really this illustrates there is no rank and file in the kingdom of heaven. It is all by grace. It's all by grace. It's by the calling of the master and the grace of the master, the grace of God. 
Now, now we've already established God's the householder. He's the master of the vineyard. The vineyard is his kingdom, his, his covenant people. And we learn that God is sovereign to call who he wants, when he wants, and to give them what he wants. But what is the actual application of the parable? Uh, in other words, who do the workers represent? Um, there's, there's actually a few legitimate applications of the principle embodied in this parable. Some of Jesus' parables are very tight in their application. Right? They apply to one thing or one situation, like the parable of um, the fig tree, for example. Right? This parable, though, has a couple different ways it can be applied. Now, let's consider some of those applications. Three examples for you of how this principle in this parable can be applied. Um, well, the first, and, and I think the most immediate application of the context in Matthew's Gospel, is God's redemptive plan for Israel and the Gentiles. God's redemptive plan for Israel and the Gentiles. From, from this perspective, uh, the first workers hired would be the Israelites, the Jews. Right? The Jews throughout history, they were unique. They were the first nation called by God into a formal covenant with Him. Um, Deuteronomy 7.6 says this about Israel, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God's chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Um, and, and it's true that Israel was given many, many blessings, many temporal blessings. And they knew about the true God longer than any other nation on earth. Romans 9, 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul describes many of these blessings. He says they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. Oh, that's, that's pretty awesome, right? These are great blessings. And God promised them to Israel. He gave Israel everything he promised to them, exactly as he said he would. And in fact, when we look at the New Testament, we see that Jesus came first to who? To the Jews. And then sent his apostles out to the Gentiles. Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So the Jews were the first nation called from all the other nations of the earth into covenant with him. Uh, I mean, really about 1,400 years before Jesus' time. So if the first workers hired were the Jews, the last workers hired would be the Gentiles. The one in the middle, right, they, they don't really matter for the purposes of the parable. It's the first and the last. The last workers hired would be the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles were, were pagans, idol worshippers. Unclean in the eyes of the Jews, doing all kinds of crazy pagan rituals, right? And some of those things being horrible. They were undeserving of the blessings the Jews had. The Gentiles were far off from God. Ephesians chapter 2 says they were um, without God, right? Far off from Him. But through Christ, they're being called into the vineyard of the Lord, into His covenant people, into spiritual Israel. Ephesians 2 describes how God's making one new man, one new people, Jew and Gentile, together in Christ. Of course, this happens much later in history than it does for the Jewish people, doesn't it? But they're being called to the same place. And based on the parable, uh, do you think that Jews who believe in Jesus will receive greater blessing than the Gentiles? No. No. They, they both receive the same payment. That's the whole point of the parable. They both get a denarius. Both Jew and Gentile who believe in Jesus the Messiah are made equal. They're made equal in the words of the grumbling workers. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of the mystery of the gospel. 
which has now been revealed. Uh, Ephesians 3, he says, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3, 6. You see that? That's equal blessing for Jew and Gentile in Christ. Equal blessing, even though the Jews had the previous covenant relationship and the law and all the advantages there, even though they labored under the oppression of the Gentiles and they were in Egypt and all these things, right? Equal blessing in Christ for Jew and Gentile. Now, the Jews thought they would be first in the kingdom, but really they were just first to hear about the kingdom. So in this sense, right, the first way we could apply the parable is God's equal grace and blessing to both Jews and Gentiles in Christ. Uh, a second application of the parable is the way in which God calls individuals to salvation in Christ. The way God calls individuals to salvation in Christ. Now some people, perhaps some of you, uh, follow Jesus from childhood. Right? You become converted at a very young age. Maybe you can't even recall a time when you didn't know and love and trust Jesus. Right? Maybe, maybe that's just all you've ever known. Uh, that happens. Maybe you didn't have a radical conversion experience. You just lived as a disciple of Jesus for nearly your entire life. Right? You're, you're called and saved from an early age. We could say these are the first workers called very early on in life. But other people have a very different experience. Um, for some people, most of their life is spent in sinful rebellion against God. Most of their life is spent running away from Him. Right? Most of their life is spent with disregard for God and His Word and his, his Son. But then God saves them very late in life. It bursts them anew very late in life, maybe even on their deathbed. Right? Some people even live lives of great and heinous evil. And yet they believe in Jesus and are saved. We could say these are the later workers who rack up a, a greater debt of sin in one sense, and yet they are equally forgiven in Christ. They are equally loved in Christ, equally co-heirs with Christ, equally Christians to the people who have followed Jesus from age six. Now some people, generally it's not Christians who raise this objection, but some people say this is not fair that horrible, horrible people who end up believing in Jesus later in life, end up forgiven. While fairly moral people who don't believe in Jesus will not be forgiven. They say that's not fair. And that's true, it's not fair. God's not bound by standards of human fairness. But here's the important thing. It is also not unjust. It's also not unjust. God adds mercy to justice according to his sovereign will. Now, many people shudder at the name of Jeffrey Dahmer, one of the most notorious American serial killers, uh, who was guilty of unspeakably depraved and gruesome crimes. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer would be the kind of person that most of us would place in the same category if, if there were levels of hell, right? The same level as Adolf Hitler, right? We're talking about that level of wickedness. Yet what many people do not know is that Jeffrey Dahmer in prison had something fairly incredible happen to him. Roy Ratcliffe, a pastor, writes in his book, Dark Journey, Deep Grace, about how he was contacted to baptize Jeffrey Dahmer in 1994. Uh, you see, Jeffrey Dahmer in prison had received all kinds of Bibles, Bible study courses, gospel tracts. Um, he had thrown most of those away, uh, but there was, there was one or two that, that he didn't get rid of, and he read those. And through that, Jeffrey Dahmer repented of his sins, professed faith in Jesus Christ, 
and was baptized. And six months later, he was murdered by another inmate. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer was a worker lately hired. And yet, in Christ, he received the same blessing, the same status, the same forgiveness as you or I. And we might struggle with that a little bit. Perhaps even some of you are going, I wonder if that was even a real profession of faith, right? Because we have such a hard time thinking that God could save such an evil man. And yet God, God does. God does. He, the master, he's abundantly generous. He is abundantly gracious. He is fully sovereign to save who, when, and how he pleases. And what should our response be? Should it be skepticism of Jeffrey Dahmer's faith and testimony? I, I don't think so, right? We shouldn't be begrudging that Jeffrey Dahmer gets the same blessings as you and I, but that God was so gracious to save Jeffrey Dahmer. We should rejoice over that, that God was gracious and merciful and generous to such a man as that. Uh, in fact, at a sentencing hearing, <clears throat> Dahmer quoted 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16 in reference to himself, which says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Originally, Paul, a man who persecuted Christians and very likely killed some, said those words about himself. How appropriate for Jeffrey Dahmer to claim those words about his own life. Yes, God's gracious salvation towards those last workers does just that. It magnifies His grace. It magnifies His mercy. It magnifies His patience. And Jesus talks about this. It's, you know, it's really something where we know everybody's a sinner. We know everybody has fallen short. Everybody uh, has, is, is condemned by the standard of God's law apart from Christ. One sin is sufficient to condemn a person to hell. But Jesus also talks about how those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who come from a particularly um, rebellious, wicked life that is evident to all, often shine brighter as trophies of God's redeeming grace. That grace is the same to each and every one of us. Okay? But in the eyes of people watching to say, God saved even him? God saved even her? That's incredible. That's incredible. It is a trophy of His grace, a cause for rejoicing, for praise, for worship. Not for begrudging His generosity or saying it's, it's not fair. No, we should rejoice that God showed such mercy to even a person like, like that. So that's the second application, the way in which God calls and saves individuals. A third application of this parable is the different ways in which God blesses labors for his name. Now, some people tire, uh, labor tirelessly. They work faithfully for decades. They see little fruit. Jeremiah the prophet, for example, prophesied faithfully and nobody listened to him. Nobody listened to him. William Carey, the first international missionary, labored in India for seven years before he saw his first convert. Seven years in, in, in the span of which his wife had a breakdown and tried to murder. It was just crazy, right? He's laboring faithfully. Seven years of suffering before even one convert. We could say these are the first workers hired. They're laboring long. They're laboring hard. And yet other times, God uses freshly converted people 
who, who maybe have been laboring for 15 minutes and have very little experience, who are still very immature as Christians perhaps, right? And he blesses every conversation they have about Christ, right? Um, God is pleased to bless his word and his servants with the results he wants. And we should rejoice to see other servants seeing great success for Christ's sake, even if it's greater success than we may be seeing from our own labors. And brothers and sisters, that's one of the reasons we, we want to be committed to praying for other local churches. Right? We know we're a small church, right? We, we want to see God do great things this year, of course. But we know we're a small church, and we're trying to be faithful, and we're serving, and we, we want to honor the Lord, right? And we may see other churches being blessed more. Let's praise God for that. Let's rejoice in His generosity and His grace. That's why we want to pray for other local churches, is to praise God for His kindness and His grace through their ministry. So friends, what is your response to the generous grace of God? Whether it's about the way that God saves some and not others, whether it's about who God saves, whether it's the way that you see God maybe blessing somebody else much more in their life, giving them a much easier life than what you're dealing with. Maybe other people are, are healthy and you deal with chronic illness and you say, God, why are you blessing them that way? Do you often find yourself saying, it's not fair about God's Sovereign grace towards sinners. Now, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Let's change that perspective. And instead of focusing on our idea of fairness, let's focus on the generous and merciful grace of God. Because what we don't realize is that we have also received God's generous grace and mercy. All that we've received from Him is far more than we deserve. Far more than we deserve. And really, the greatest grace of all is God sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not obligated to save any single person from hell. He's not obligated to do that whatsoever. He'd be perfectly just, perfectly within the bounds of righteous justice to let every sinful person perish. He could do that. But that's not what He's chosen to do. He's chosen to show grace to sinners, to provide a Savior for all who believe in Him. So if you're here this morning, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have received this abundant grace, right? You have received it. And what can we begrudge God for in light of all we've received in the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen? That is a cause for constant worship, constant rejoicing, regardless of what other people may be getting. We've received far more than what's fair, brothers and sisters. We've received abundant grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray and give God thanks. Our Lord and our God, you are not fair. You are not fair, and we rejoice in that, Lord. For if you gave us what was fair, our souls would be condemned to hell, and there would be no hope for us. For Lord, we know we have sinned, we've transgressed your law, and you would be just to punish us accordingly. But Lord, you chose to do what was not fair, sparing us, sending Christ Jesus. And Lord Jesus, you willingly laid down your life. Though you had done nothing wrong, you bore all of our sin, that we might have nothing but grace. You took all of our unrighteousness, that we would be clothed fully in your righteousness. And Lord, that is not fair, but it is so abundantly gracious. 
so incredibly merciful. And our Lord, we pray you would help us never to lose sight of the mercy and grace that we have received. And that out of that, Lord, if we see others being blessed in ways that we may be tempted to envy, that you would help us to remember all we've received from your hand, all of your blessings, all of your benefits, which are given to us fully, freely, and forever in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks in his name, and we confess you are the free and sovereign God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A benediction for you as we prepare for lunch. Um, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You are loved. Again, please go ahead and uh, once the, the food is ready,